0: Welcome to this message from Life Assembly, a thriving church in the northwest suburbs of Minneapolis. Please visit us online at lifemn.org for more information. And now join us as we pursue Jesus together. Crocodile tears. Have any of you ever shed a few of those before? Somebody just told me. It was somebody yesterday. I've been stopped 14 times. And I've never had one speeding ticket. And I looked at her, and I'm like, oh, you drive me nuts. <laughs> Some of you, those crocodile tears. Man, I tell you what. The idea of crocodile tears are placed back in, it was mentioned quite a bit in the 16th century, but it was found as early as the 14th century, that a crocodile, it, it begins to tear at its, as it's eating its prey. So this is where this comes from. There's different writings and poetry about crocodile tears. And uh, one, one person writes that the poor, sad crocodile can make animals feel sorry for it, and it while it's crying. And then it would pounce and continue to cry as it eats its prey. It's just part of their physiology. They're, they've tried to figure out why it happens, but for whatever reason, whether it's the pressure, this air that comes through as they're eating, that it forces their tear ducts to go. <laughs> as pathetic as it sounds, um, I, I tried to get a girl to notice me um, in, in high school once. And, you know, when you try to get noticed, it's kind of hard, you know? You're just trying to figure things out as a, as a young man, and i tried so hard and i just she just wouldn't give me the time of day so i thought i'm going to try the crocodile tears i'm going to i'm going to look pathetic <laughs> <laughs> I forgot I put that there. <laughs> it didn't work. It didn't work. it didn't work, and i'm I'm thankful because man, if it worked, I would have just been a teary eyed fellow all the time, you know? Man, this is why we call it crocodile tears we We've witnessed the uncomfortable display of unapologetic people crying the big tears and. They're disappointed about really being caught, right? Their hand stuck in the cookie jar. They don't care necessarily about the damage or the heartache that they have caused. We've all witnessed this, haven't we? We've all, we've all done it to one degree or another. I remember I was, a, I was a young young man. Okay, I was a kid, and it was in the mid-80s. You know, the bangs were on fire, and clothes were colorful and fantastic, and uh, some of the best and most epic movies had already been out there. And I was roaming the rough and tough streets of Cavalier, North Dakota, (laughs) and uh, I was on the corner of my city block, and just so you know, a block in Cavalier, North Dakota, you have about six or seven houses, okay, so my block wasn't like a city block. <clears throat> and uh, I, don't, I can't remember if I was pressured in or exactly how it, it happened, but I found myself with one smooth stone and a 1970s large blue car. You know, they look like a giant boat coming across the street and I got my smooth stone and I threw that thing so hard and I hit the moving car and that boat screeched on its brakes. We kids dispersed like the Russians were coming. They were parachuting down, but it, and it said it was one mother, and she was mad. You know what I did? That's right, I ran. I ran and I ran, and I found a hiding spot about that eight inches between a washer and dryer and your, your wall, you know what I'm talking about, That's where I hid. I found my spot and I was like, just Spider-Man back there. And I'll never forget my mom's face peering over the edge doing that look. Do you think the tears came? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, I don't remember at all feeling bad about throwing the rock. I was actually fairly impressed with myself. I hit a moving car. (laughs) The problem the problem is that my mom knew that. Now, there are some of you in here today, grandparents, because you're seeing your grandkids and parents, and maybe even it happened today, you hear the, say sorry. Say sorry to your brother. Say sorry to your sister. Say sorry. Sorry. And what do you say? Say it like you mean it. Right? Say, how can you tell? You can tell, can't you? You can tell. Where is the sincerity in this. As an adult, um, we, we can tell. We've seen it. We've done it. We've experienced it. Crocodile tears. So then, as I'm working more um, this, the church today in this ancient message, I'm trying to bring us along with something. Can you have repentance without reform? Or simply stated, can you say you're sorry? If we're talking to a kid, can you say you're sorry and not change? Of course you can. So let's just pretend, now this is a totally fictitious scenario, it would never happen. My wife would say to me, I told you not to eat the cookie dough. And I would say, I am so, so very sorry, honey, that I ate. The cookie dough. I'm not a monster. I'll say I'm sorry. Did I mean it? No. No, I just need to hone my thievery skills of cookie dough better. I need to be better at when she turns her back to scoop, maybe give her a hug, and then have my cookie dough, right? I had no intention of change I repented, sure. Was I sorrowful? No. I'm really sorry that I got caught, honey. Now, clearly, I'm making a fun of a trivial matter, but repentance without reform or change is what we call crocodile tears. They are sorry for being caught, they are embarrassed, but there's truly not a turn. Now, there are many times that we are truly sorry, but it's still not enough to turn and to change. One example in Scripture is Judas. He was sorry, but there was not a godly sorrow. He felt guilty for sending an innocent man to death. He tried to give the blood money that he received for betraying Christ back. In Matthew 27.3, it says, Judas was seized with remorse. But you know what? You think of it, Peter denied Christ three times. And when that chicken and that rooster crowed, and he knew that Christ had told him he was going to deny him, and all these words came true, he was also seized with grief and sorrow. But we see the repentance and the restoration, the turn of Peter, whereas Judas, we do not see that. Another example is Esau. In the book of Genesis, we, we see this story of Jacob and Esau and, and uh, Jacob is known as a deceiver, and he got the birthright of Esau. And it says in Genesis 27, uh, in, in 25 34 Esau despised his own birthright. But when it was time for that blessing, when it was time for Esau to go and get the blessing of the birthright, he cried because he had already given it away. He cried. But he had despised his birthright. McGarvey, who is a commentator and a theologian, wrote about um, he wrote about this, and he says, quote, "Strictly defined, therefore, repentance is a change of the will produced by sorrow for sin and leading to reformation. If the change of will is not produced by sorrow for sin, it is not." repentance. As a church, we've been looking at the birth of a movement that we see in the book of Acts. It has been, for me, it has been so exciting to walk through this birth of the Holy Spirit breathing down on this group of people, starting from the upper room and going out and empowering the common man the common people, you look at the apostles, you look at these people, these were common people dealing with the same problem, the same common jobs, regular lives, problems with communicating with their spouses. I mean, these were just regular people and the Holy Spirit used them. And like we talked about last week in First Peter, that each person has a gift given from God. It's true. You have a gift. You have a gift. Last week we ended on, really it was just the beginning of of Acts chapter 3, where Peter and John were going to the temple to pray as they did. At 3 in the afternoon, there was excitement. They were going to see some of their friends. There was camaraderie. They were seeing people there, and they get to pray and lift up the name of the Lord. And this beggar stops them at the city gate, this gate, the temple gate called Beautiful. And he said, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And that's where we are starting today. This healing took place, and what do you think happened? People start gathering. People are running. People are looking and saying, oh my goodness, look at what they did. Look at what they did. And immediately, Peter wastes no time. If you remember, Peter was the one that preached the message from the upper room. The Holy Spirit came on him, and I said, I, I've told you that I am still waiting for that message that I preach, that 3,000 people get saved, and we're a megachurch overnight. I'm not saying that that's what I want, but I'm just saying that would be great. Wouldn't it be just a wow, that was a good sermon, right? That's what Peter did. But we know that it had nothing to do with his uneducated sermon that he gave. It had to do with the Holy Spirit coming with power and delivering through the people. And this is what we see again. Peter and John going to the temple. They're at the gate beautiful. They lay their hands on this man. He jumps up. He's holding on to them. People start gathering, and now he has an opportunity again. And, of course, Peter seizes this opportunity. If you have your uh, Bible, we're going to have it up here as well. It's Acts chapter 3, starting at verse 11. Well, the man held on to Peter and John. All the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? Now, this is a problem for us. When there is somebody with a gift, a spiritual gift, and like we talked about last week, some gifts are, are, there's just more to it than others. We need to be happy and praise the Lord when we see somebody with a stronger gift than ourselves. We need to rejoice in that. There can be an amen there. It's hard. It's hard to rejoice with people that you see doing better than you, maybe. But it says right there that it has nothing to do with their own power or their own godliness, Their behavior did not heal this leper. So many times we run to people because we see something that they're doing because of a gift or an anointing that's on them. And a lot of times our eyes are on the gifts instead of the gift giver. Are you focused on the gift giver this morning? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. Verse 14, you disowned the holy and the righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. How would you feel if you were having that message? You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, did you notice that Peter said nothing about himself? And he says, why does it surprise you people? After this healing took place, Peter and John were seized at the temple. It was now later in the afternoon, and so they adjourned later until the next morning, but they were in jail until the next day. Acts 4.13, it says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They were common men, ordinary, run-of-the-mill, nothing-to-see-here type people, but they had been with Jesus. A number of years ago, I went to a Chi Alpha service at the U of M. If you're not familiar, Chi Alpha is a, a ministry that goes to secular universities and provides avenues for people who are searching, because you know universities today are just a ground for people in a, in a time of um, searching in their life. It is just such a strategic place um, all, all, all over the place, but specifically here in our universities. We support some of these missionaries. But anyway, I went and I brought some students who were graduating. I wanted to get them plugged in, so when they left our youth group, and our church, that they had an opportunity to see what it was like to be on a university campus. So I brought them to a Chi Alpha um, meeting that they had, I believe it was on Tuesday nights. And as, as we were there, I started to, to hear the Chi Alpha pastor doing a, a sermon and time after a time of worship. And I sat and I listened, and I realized that the logic... And the rhetoric that he was using, that he was using the arguments and the speech and everything that I knew from a hero of mine by the name of Dr. Timothy Keller. I knew exactly which book he read. I knew exactly where he was going. And I afterwards, I waited and I spoke with him because we had a common ground here. I was so excited of what he was using and how he was using it to talk to university students about apologetics and and different things like that. Isn't it interesting that just based on his speech, I knew who he had been with. I knew what he was doing. Just sitting and and listening for a little bit, whether we want to admit it or not, better for worse, we can tell where we have been. A famous quote that parents like to tell their kids, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Acts 14, or 4.13, I'm going to say it again. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Who have you been with? Some of you know I've, I've shared different stories of being raised in, in rural North Dakota, physical labor type jobs, working and being in bean and grain elevators and road construction. There were times that my language reflected my surroundings. I was still a Christian, but I was trying to figure it out. I was trying to figure it out. But sometimes you could tell where I'd been. Where are we going and who? Are we traveling with? Where do we spend our time? What do we read? What are we putting before our eyes? Where do our feet take us? Where do we allow our minds to roam? These decisions that we make, these small decisions, will take us somewhere, whether we intend it to go to the destination we want to or not. And if we get caught in a destination we don't want to go, are we shedding crocodile tears or true tears of repentance? So ask yourself, will this decision put me on a path closer to Jesus? When I was um, a young adult, I had been at um, Evangel University for some time and I was really trying to figure out my faith and question things. I remember coming back to my mom and saying, I can do this and be a Christian, or I can do that. Why did you tell me not to do that? And I'll never forget the words she said to me one time. She said, just ask yourself, is that getting you closer to Jesus? I went, oh, mom, that was good. Oh, When people take note of us, who do they say that we've been with? This is why when somebody becomes a Christian, it becomes noticeable and sometimes fairly quickly. It's not that they're all of a sudden becoming righteous and holy and everything is right and perfect in the world. There's still a lot of edges that need to come off of us, right? However, something begins to change because now, we are starting to have a companionship with Christ. And that's why people can go, Man, there's just something off about you. I can't quite put my finger on it. And the truth of the matter is, is that you've been with Jesus. And people begin to recognize that. After Peter healed this beggar, he preached a message to onlookers. And here was his action steps for the people there. And all these years later, and that's why I got excited about sharing an ancient message with you. There's nothing new about it. Acts 3.19, it's the same chapter. Repent then. So repent, here's the repentance part of it, but he didn't stop there. Repent then and turn to God. So that. Now in Titus, oh man, I think there's like eight different times that it says so that. So if there's a so that in there, it's telling you to do something so that a positive thing can happen. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Repentance alone was not enough. In that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. There's a bonus. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Paul says to the Corinthians, Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly Sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. God desires more than crocodile tears. And yes, friends, like a good father, he knows. He also knows that for true change to come, we need him. If you are in your own strength, trying to do it all right and be good enough, it's never going to be enough. It is never going to be enough. And that is the message of why Christ came for us. This is the message of the cross that we cannot do it in our own strength and why we needed the perfect sacrifice, as we sang this morning, the perfect Lamb of God. I'm not asking you to take my word for it this morning. I'm asking you to take the word of these eyewitnesses that we're reading from, that not only saw the life of Christ, saw the miraculous works, but saw him hang on a cross and witnessed him as he rose again. They were there. Who gives up their life for a total fabrication? Would you? Would you give up your life for a lie? What benefit would anybody have to purposely do that? We have an opportunity to read from eyewitness accounts of people who were with Christ, saw what he did, and knew him to be the Messiah. And friends, if your own brother calls you the Messiah, you know there's something to that. You can read the book of James if you have questions about that. Today, we are presented with the same call of repentance that Peter delivered at the gate called beautiful. I find this gate called beautiful a wonderful symbol of our acceptance of Christ. Jesus tells us that he is the gate. He tells us that he is the door. He is the only way to the Father. The only gate of salvation is the beautiful gate of Christ our Lord. There is no other. Pastor Callie, if you would come and just play softly today. I didn't um, come into pastoring right out of college. I worked for many years in different, areas of, of work. As Jaina and I um, got married early on and had kids immediately, I mean, we were just pumping them out. We had no idea what we were doing. I'd like to think we're a little better now. We're just doing the best that we could. And, and as we got plugged into a local church, and started serving our desire to serve and to be a part of what God was doing began to grow. And and when I was really young, I'd felt this call into ministry and I didn't know what to do with it and and things seemed to get off the rails for me. And I got sick at college, had to leave. I just had this time and I'm married and kids. I feel like, I just remember saying, Lord, do do you still have anything? Those words that you gave me when I was young, are they still there? I didn't know. So all I did is I continued to serve. I started to go and go back to college and just say, Lord, if an opportunity arises, I'm, I'm going to jump. And I remember we were serving in, a, in the youth group. They brought us in because my wife had dreads. I had a long hair and beard, looked like Jesus with holes in his pants. And they looked at us and thought, oh, they should be with our youth. I mean, who does that, right? But we, we were doing it, and... In that, I remember my first time I had an opportunity to present a gospel message to these youth kids. And I remember preparing, and I didn't know what I was doing, and it was probably a total mess. But I remember weeping and saying, Lord, I am so honored that I get to present your gospel. I am so honored that I get to share your message of hope and life with these young kids. And Lord, if, if this is the opportunities that, that I get, then I'm going to take them. And you know, I get just as emotional when I think about it now because this ancient message I get to share with you today, the birth of a movement is all based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the message that Peter shared that morning was you need to repent and you need to do more than just repent. You need to now turn. And I'm asking you this morning, would you please just bow your heads for a moment? Because this is a sacred moment that I get to have with you right now this morning. First, if you've made Christ your Lord, I want you to just just raise your hand right now. You've done this. You have made this commitment to Christ. Thank you. You've participated in this before. If you are here and of you have not made this commitment, but you want to, I want you to just raise your hand and we can talk afterwards, okay? I'm not going to call you up and embarrass you or anything like that. Just go ahead and Raise your hand. Thank you. Would you please stand? Um, Last week, uh, a guy by the name of uh, Eugene Peterson passed away. Some of you read the Message Bible. He had wrote that, a, a way to simplify scripture for people who are maybe not used to reading a King James version of the Bible. Um, He he wrote this. He has a number of other books and something that, that he had taught me that's really changed my ministry is that there are sacred moments that we have throughout an entire day. And I had one of these lessons. I was in the car with my son and for those who are about to be judgmental about this. It's okay, I'm still at work. I picked up my son from school and sometimes I get in my head and I got these things, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking through things and he was on fire. I mean, he was talking up a storm and I wasn't ready for this. I was in my own head space and I wanted to be there and I started to reach for my volume and I was I know, don't cringe, please. I was about to turn it up because by turning it up, I'm essentially saying, you turn it down. And in this moment, a question that Eugene Peterson said is, is this a sacred moment that you're having right now? And I realized that I was in my car and as trivial as it may be, I was having a sacred moment in the car with my son who wanted to talk to his dad. That's kind of a sacred moment sometimes, right, parents? And I did the best I could to get myself out of my own headspace and to listen to my son speak. And I've been starting to ask myself when talking with you and with doing and going my ordinary life and sometimes at the coffee shop where I'm learning people's names and talking to them saying, is this a sacred moment that I'm about to share with someone? I want to invite you as our church into these sacred moments. When you're in our life groups, when you're out, you may be able to speak the life of Christ into somebody's life and have a sacred moment with them. When we invite people into a loving relationship with Jesus Christ, that is a sacred moment that we rejoice in as a church, isn't it? So as I send you out today, I am sending you out to have a week of sacred moments. I pray that it will begin to change your life like it changes mine. And if you are in this place and you just need some prayer today, I want to invite you to come up to the front. Okay, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray a blessing upon our church, upon our congregation. I'm so grateful for everyone who is here who is visiting, Lord. I pray that your anointing and your spirit... Is upon them. I pray, Lord, that they leave this place blessed and encouraged, and wherever you're taking them, Lord. The families who are not here today that are part of our church, I pray that you are with them and that you are giving them sacred moments as well. Heavenly Father, we love you and we praise you in our church together in unison. Said, Amen. May you be blessed and. May You've been listening to a message from Life Assembly. Connect with us online at lifemn.org. And thanks for listening.